Bible. A uh, question for all of us here this morning as we get going. Uh, what is the greatest miracle in the Bible? What is the most amazing thing that we have the record of God doing? What do you think? Pardon? Saving sinners. That's a good answer. That's a good answer. You know, some people might say, might say Jonah and the fish. Yeah, that's pretty good. You know, uh, guys don't normally stay alive for three days in the belly of a giant sea creature. Uh, normally, within three days, they are no longer alive. Um, they have made their exit from the fish by then, right? Uh, normally, you don't feed 5,000 people on two loaves or a few loaves and some fish, right? Can't do it. Uh, some people like Samson and his great strength. Some people like Joshua's long day. Uh, the biblically minded might go for the inspiration of Scripture itself and go, well, you know, if we didn't have the Bible, if we didn't have the Holy Spirit to inspire the Scripture, then we'd have nothing and no way to read about the miracles God has done. Uh, if you're a clever person, you might think, well, no, it's not those, it's the creation. Because without the creation, none of us would be here to know about God's miracles. Well, that's, that's not bad. Uh, some people might, if they're a, a more theologically minded person, might say, well, no, it's the incarnation or it's the resurrection. Because without the incarnation and the resurrection, we wouldn't have the person of Jesus in whom to believe. Uh, i tell you what I think. I'm with Marty on this one. I think that the greatest miracle that God performs is the one that is recorded for us in Romans chapter 3, verses 21 to 31, that we're going to look at together today. Uh, even the incarnation and the resurrection, which are tied for my top two picks after this one, are performed in order to achieve this miracle that we're going to look at today in Romans 3. And I want to show it to you and reveal all of its grandeur and all of its glory for us, uh, because it is truly a miracle. Um, by the way, if you're, if you're here this morning and you do not own a Bible, uh, you don't have one, uh, we have some back by the, the door there. Uh, those are for you, and if you need one, grab one, okay? We want you to, want every person who comes to church here, even for one week, to have their very own copy of the Scriptures, uh, because if you read it, it will change your life. It absolutely will. So, uh, if, you, if you do have your Bible there, uh, I want you to open, your, open it up to Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through 31, that we're going to look at together today. And before we do that, Let's do pray and ask God to guide us by His Holy Spirit into His Word. God, our Heavenly Father, we thank You for the magnificent privilege that we have of reading Your Word inspired by Your Holy Spirit, written by the apostles whom You called and by the prophets whom You sent to Your people. And Father, we are just amazed by what we read there, of your mighty works 
and of your incredible nature and of this, the fact that you do save sinners from sin and death and hell through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And Father, we thank you uh, that you have given us the privilege of gathering together and to, to worshiping you and to learning your word. Father, help us to, uh, to see it in all of its grandeur, in all of its greatness and glory. Help us to see you reflected in its pages as we study. And Father, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, let's read here, beginning verse 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Uh, if you read Romans chapter 1, verse 1, all the way down through chapter 3, verse 20, what you will find out is that sin is treasonous rebellion against God and that all of us whether we are immoral and idolatrous heathens, or whether we are pious and religious people who are overconfident in our own self-righteousness to save us, that we all, in fact, deserve death and hell for our sins. But these verses right here, the ones I just read, are the hinge of the book of Romans. They are the the the... Uh, implement on which the entire book turns because Paul is going to tell us not just where we stand before God before Christ now he is going to begin to tell us what Christ has accomplished and what he has done and what the impact of the gospel is on us who believe in Christ on how the gospel transforms your life, how God, through the gospel, brings us all the way home. That He not only saves us, He sanctifies us. How He not only sanctifies us, He glorifies us. How through the gospel, He overcomes sin. Through the gospel, we have our treasure in heaven. Through the gospel, we have union with Christ. And all of these marvelous things. But it's these verses that mark the transition from Paul castigating us in our sin and helping us understand how truly bad off and how, to use a theological term, totally depraved we are. Not that we are all as bad as, bad as we could be, but that we are all as bad off as we could be because we are separated from God and condemned for our sin. But Christ has come. And, and let me just say this too, by just way of introduction to these verses, you know, lots of people who are skeptics read the Bible and they ask this question. They say, 
uh, well, Joe or Aaron or uh, Brian or whoever, you know, they're, they're talking to, they say, well, how can it be that you believe on the one hand in a loving God and on the other that that loving God sends people to hell? Let me just tell you this for, for certainty, okay? The Bible does not answer that question. And the reason why is the Bible is not concerned about the answer to that question. The, the answer to the question the Bible is concerned with is how can a just God not send people to hell? How can a God who is just in punishing evil and sin and rebellion against God fail in, to be righteous and bring people to heaven? Because see, because we understand what Paul was saying in the first three chapters of this book, we understand that all of us are sinners and all of us are deserving of going to hell as a result. So then Paul in these verses is concerned to tell us how it is that a God who is just can, in, can enable us to go to heaven and still remain just. How can that be? How can God's righteousness still be vindicated in not sending us to hell? How does God's grace work? How is it that God's love, in a sense, overcomes God's justice when God's justice and His love cooperate at the same time and are perfect in their expression all the time? How can that be? And the answer is, is that God's love and His justice meet in the person of Jesus Christ and in his death on the cross. And I want to show you and explain this to you. I want to just take walk you through a verse at a time. Verse 21 says, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. In other words, through the gospel, what God has done is made it obvious how to have righteousness apart from the law. A lot of people in Paul's day, a lot of religious people, a lot of his fellow Jews thought that the way to obtain the righteousness of God, in other words, the righteousness that God requires to go to heaven, to enter into his presence for eternity, was by keeping the law. That if we obey all 613 commandments of the scriptures, if we hold to the teaching of the rabbis, then we will obtain the righteousness of God and God will allow us into his presence forever. And he is saying, no, in Christ, God has made it obvious. He has manifested how to have righteousness apart from the law. And what the law showed, according to Paul, is that the people could not keep it. After all, what is the one thing you have to do if you are a Jew in order to be in right relationship with God? You have to make sacrifices, right? Okay, now, um, be honest now. How many of you have had your Bible reading plan die in Leviticus? Right? You open that up, 
You're, you made it through Genesis, you plowed through Exodus, and you're like, boy, this is great stuff. I'm on track to get through my Bible in a year. You hit Leviticus and you hit the wall, right? Because you start reading about all of these sacrifices and all of this stuff and all of the clothes that the priests have to wear and how they're supposed to make the sacrifice. And if it's this kind of sacrifice, you have to, has to be this much wine and this much salt and all this kind of stuff that goes with the sacrifice, right? What is the point of the sacrifice? To tell you that because you're a sinner, you cannot stay in right relationship with God, so you need to make sacrifice. Right? So in other words, all of the law is meant to tell you you cannot keep the law. Because you need to make sacrifices. Why do you need to make sacrifices? Because you're a sinner. And no one can keep the law. And he says, righteousness is needed apart from the law, and the law and the prophets testify to it. In other words, the whole Old Testament tells you that you need a righteousness apart from the law. Which is why you get in Ezekiel and in Jeremiah this discussion about the new covenant that God is going to make that will be written not on tablets of stone but on your heart and that God through the prophet Joel is going to send the the Holy Spirit to live within you. But something new is needed. Something better is needed. And you get through uh, Moses and Isaiah and David and Habakkuk and Malachi and all of these other prophets. You get announcement of the coming of Messiah. That Messiah is coming. And he is bringing the new covenant. And he will establish a new way of relating to God. And that's what Paul is talking about when he says the law and the prophets testify to this righteousness of God apart from the law that we need. And now it has been manifested. How has it been manifested? The Messiah came. The new covenant has been made. Messiah is here. You must be, the law is absolutely clear on this point. Remember what the law says? Be holy, therefore, as I am holy. In order to be in right relationship with God, you have to be as good as God is. And yet the law points out that there is no possible way which is why you need sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice in the morning and in the evening every single day, every week, every month, every season, every year. Literal rivers of blood flowed out of the temple because of the need for sacrifice to cover the sin of the people. And Paul tells us how to get the righteousness of God. Look at verse 22. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction. How does a person obtain God's righteousness? How do you become as good and holy as God is? There is one and only one way. 
through faith in Jesus Christ. You must believe that He is the Son of God who died on the cross for your sins and was raised from the dead to give you eternal life. And the last part of that verse tells us something important. There is no distinction. And what that is is a reminder that everybody needs Jesus. There is no distinction. In other words, just in case you forgot, folks, you religious people, what I've been telling you in chapter 2 and the first part of chapter 3, that religion is not going to get you there, that keeping the law and being a good person and doing good deeds and having the right religious rites performed is not going to get the job done, in case you forgot, there's no distinction. Everybody needs Jesus. Amen? And he tells them also why there's no distinction and why everybody needs Jesus in a verse you ought to memorize if you haven't. Verse 23, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now let me explain that. The Greek word that's translated there, all, is from a Greek word that means are you ready? All. Okay, I'll just lay that on you, okay? Uh, it is the word pantas, okay? It is the word for all. Every single human that has ever drawn breath on this planet, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There is no such thing as a mere human who is not a sinner. Amen? And the word fall short is an archery term that means missing the target. And it's not, you know, I don't know if how many of you have ever shot archery or you played darts or whatever, okay? It's not the case when it talks about missing the target. The meaning there is not simply that, you know, instead of hitting the bullseye, you like landed in the yellow somewhere. Okay, it's that you not only missed the target, you shot on purpose the wrong one. We have intentionally shot things we have, should never have aimed at in the first place. It is not simply that we are like the old Maxwell Smart. You remember Get Smart? Okay, where he'd be like, I missed it by that much, right? Uh, no, it isn't that. It isn't that our righteousness comes really, really close. Okay? You didn't, you didn't aim at God's righteousness and miss it by a hair. No, you aimed at sin and hit it square on. <laughs> okay? And you fall short of the glory of God, not by a little, but by a lot. And you are in desperate need of God's grace. And God's solution to the problem is what he tells us in verse 24. Read it with me. Verse 24. And are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. You know what justified means? It is better, it's not just innocent, 
okay? A lot of people, a lot of people think of, of being justified. In fact, you'll hear this explanation given. They'll say things like, well, justified means just as if you'd never sinned. In other words, that you're, it's as if you were in court accused of the crime of sin against God and you get acquitted. But that's not what it means. It's not that you get off. It's that you are declared not just innocent, but righteous. That you, are, you in other words, you aren't just neutral, but you have you have in your possession the righteousness of Christ. It's that you have things, it's not that you, it's not that you broke even in other words, it's that you have a balance in your account that you did not put there. It is that you are, it's not just that you paid all of the bills through faith in Christ, it's that Christ imputed to you, credited to you, a billion dollars to your bank account, okay? It's not like, oh, well, you know, we had, to, we had some money left over at the end. No, no, we had more than sufficient money left over at the end because we got Christ's bank account and credited to ours. That's justified. That we are declared not just innocent, but righteous. We possess something that is not ours. It is just, in other words, it is just as if, not just as if we never sinned, but just as if we were Jesus. That's justified. That when God looks at us, He does not see our sin, He sees Jesus in our place. And that is amazing. How does that happen? Look at the text. By His grace as a gift. In other words, though we deserve the condemnation of our sin all the way to hell for eternity, What we get instead is the gift of Christ's righteousness credited to us freely. And without payment and without good works to earn it, it is a gift. It is a gift. Freely given by God's grace. Do you want to know what love is? It's that. It's that we who were God's enemies, who shook our fists at Him and said, I'm going to do by God what I want to do. God sent Christ for us. And He said, through faith in Him, you can have the righteousness of Christ and enter into my presence. Our sin is not just canceled out. We are given righteousness. You remember the story of the prodigal son? Remember? What happens to the boy when he comes home? He's dressed in rags. He smells like pig. 
He's starving to death. And the father runs to him. Only time in scripture that you ever see God run is in that story. Because in the Middle East, the more dignified you are, the slower you move. Seriously. Slaves run. Men of property and wealth do not run. They walk slow. And God runs to meet his boy. And he says, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put sandals on his feet. Because servants went barefoot, but sons wore shoes. And take a signet ring and put it on his hand. And kill the fatted calf. That we might have a party. What happens to the boy? He is restored. To higher than he was before he left. He is given the father's status in the family. Isn't that amazing? That's the kind of thing Paul is talking about. That is amazing grace. That a rebel and a runaway and a renegade is brought into the family of God and given the same status as Christ our brother. He want grace, it doesn't get any better than that. And then he, he piles on another metaphor. He says, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. You want to know what it means to be redeemed? It has to do with the slave market. It's as if you and I were sins, were, were slaves to sin and to death and to its ultimate penalty of hell. And God went into the slave market and bought us and made us his and set us free to serve him. He set us free. You remember the story of Hosea and Gomer? God says to Hosea the prophet, go take yourself a wife and understand that when you marry her, she is going to run around on you and commit adultery. And so Hosea marries her and he has three kids with her. He has one that he names Jezreel because Jezreel is going to be the place of Israel's defeat. And then he has another, boy, another child that he names not my kid. Because he, she is the, he is the child of adultery. And then he has another kid that he names not loved. Because he says, I am not loved because my wife had another kid with another man. And then eventually she runs off, leaves him entirely, and starts prostituting herself all over town. She becomes enslaved to her pimp. And God says, go Show your love to your wife again and buy her back from slavery. And Hosea goes down to the slave market and pays for his wife to be set free. You want a good Old Testament image of what's in view here? When, when Paul says redeemed, that's what he means. 
that you and I had given ourselves over to our sin completely, and God in his love sent Christ to buy us out of slavery to it and to set us free and to restore us back to relationship with him. Amen? This is great stuff. If this does not stir your heart, you need to wake up. This is as good as it gets in your Bible. Verse 25 tells us more about Jesus. Read it again. Whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. Okay, now, most of you probably don't know what propitiation means. Okay, but let me explain it to you. It's a, it's a deep word. And it has to do with a sacrifice that makes peace. A sacrifice that makes peace. That's a propitiation. Our sins made us God's enemies. But God, in Christ established a peace treaty. He sent Jesus to be the peace offering between him and us and sealed the peace treaty with the blood of his son. And the word propitiation that's, tra- that's, that's translated propitiation there in Greek actually is used in the Old Testament when they translated the Old Testament into Greek. They used this word to refer to the lid on top of the Ark of the Covenant. And the word that we, we usually use when we talk about it is the mercy seat. It was a lid that had two angels on top of it and had a rim around it. And, and those two angels that were on top of it symbolized the holiness and righteousness of God. And they, looked, they were facing down, looking into the box of the ark. And inside the ark, you remember, you had three things. You had the broken set of the Ten Commandments, the one that Moses smashed when he comes down from the mountain, Exodus 32, and finds the people having an orgy at the foot of the mountain worshiping a golden calf. And he smashes the tablets. They go in the box. And then later there was another rebellion where they they rebelled against God and they said, you brought us out here in the desert to die and you won't feed us and there's nothing to eat. And God says, in the morning, you're going to find bread from heaven on the ground. And they go out in the morning and they say what? What is it? It was a symbol of their unbelief. And they took the name of what they said, manna, what is it? As the name of the thing. And they gathered some of it up and they put it in a a bowl. And they put that in the Ark of the Covenant. Again, as a symbol the people and their unbelief. And then God appointed Aaron to be the priest. And then there were some, including Aaron's own sister, who were not excited about Aaron being the high priest. And God said, I tell you what, the heads of all of the clans of Israel, you bring me your ancestral staff and we'll put them in the, in the tabernacle overnight. And whichever one in the morning has, has buds on it has begun to grow again, this dead stick has begun to grow, that will be the guy that I have appointed to be my priest and representative between me and you so that I don't kill you all for your sin. 
And in the morning, they go in and they see Aaron's staff has not only got buds, it's got flowers and leaves and almonds growing on it. In other words, God is making it really, really clear. You don't have to go, hmm, is that a bud? I think maybe. No, no. <laughs> okay. Because he knew that these rebellious people needed an obvious sign. And they put all three of these things inside the ark. And the idea was that these angels of God's holiness looked down and they saw the people's sin and their rebellion against God. And then on the Day of Atonement, what the priests would do was come in with the blood of a, of a bull and a goat and he would pour it all over the top of that lid and that rim would hold the blood in so that it covered the whole thing. And the idea was that the, there was peace made between God and His people because the blood of sacrifice covered over their sin. And Paul is saying that Jesus is the blood of sacrifice that covers over our sin. He is the sacrifice that makes peace. And better as we learn from Hebrews than the day of atonement sacrifices that had to be repeated year after year after year. Jesus' sacrifice was sufficient to be made once and only once and never needed to be repeated. Now look at the second part of the verse. This was to show God's righteousness because in forbearance he had passed over former sins. Now that line is an answer to the question that many people have about people in Old Testament times. If the blood of bulls and goats can't take away sin, and it can't, then how were people saved back then? The answer has two parts. Number one, they were saved by faith in the Messiah whom God promised in the garden and who he, whose, whose coming he expanded on through the prophets, through the rest of the Old Testament. He is explaining that the Messiah is coming and to trust in the coming Messiah who is ultimately going to deal with sin. So that's the first part. The second part is this, that God's judgment against them was withheld until the day that Messiah came. So they were saved, in a sense, on credit, and then the bill came due at Calvary and got paid. And God did not judge them for their sin, even though the blood of bulls and goats can't take away sin, because he knew there was a day coming when he would deal with sin. And so God was patient. And even though their sin was not paid by faith in the Messiah that was coming, they were saved. But God still had to pay the penalty for sin, for theirs and for ours. And it was paid by Messiah at Calvary, by Christ on the cross. And God is showing that he is righteous. And that's God's concern. He needs to show that he is righteous in dealing with sin. Look at verse 26. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Once again, the great question of the Bible is this. How can a just God allow sinful people into his presence? And God must be righteous. He has to be. 
To be anything less than holy is to contradict his nature. We are sinful. So God, in his holy love, sent Christ to the cross so that God could save us and yet still be righteous. The first part in that verse where he says, showing his righteousness at the present time, I think that is a reference to the fact that Jesus' death had just happened during Paul's lifetime. So the present time then. This has just occurred. He had God had been patient with sin in the past, but now in the present time, Paul's time, he has dealt with it. And the second part, that God is the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus is a beautiful explanation in just a few words of what I've just been telling you, that through Christ's sacrifice, God keeps his justice. The penalty for sin is paid. has to be paid with death. So he put his son to death so that his justice would be vindicated. Somebody has to cry out forsaken for sin, either you or Jesus, and it's going to be one or the other. And so God has to display his justice, and he does so in Christ. But simultaneously, he is the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Through the same act of Christ's death, the one who justifies God justifies us by our faith in Christ. He's the one who declares us to possess Christ's righteousness. There is a double swap, if you will, that happens at the cross. That Christ takes on all of our sin and we take on all of his righteousness. We make, a, we make the best trade deal that has ever been made in the history of the world. Christ offers us His righteousness in exchange for our sin. We give Him everything worthless and shady and shameful and guilty and horrible about ourselves, and He gives us everything wonderful and righteous and holy and just and loving about Him. It's the most magnificent swamp in the history of the world. This is the greatest miracle in the Bible. And it ought to cause you to shout hallelujah. It really should. (laughs) Okay. Because this is amazing grace. This is what makes God's grace so incredible. Is it's not simply that God saves people who, who are working hard at you know, trying to be righteous. It's that God saves the unrighteous. People who are His enemies. People who hate Him. People who want nothing to do with Him. Those are the ones He saves. Look at uh, the last four verses here real quickly. Verse 27 to 31. So what then becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No. But by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? 
Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. Here's the point. Nobody has any reason to be proud of their salvation. I'll tell you what I contributed to my salvation. Are you ready? I did all of the sinning. I did it all. And Christ did all the saving. I contributed nothing except a great need for salvation. I did all of the sinning. And He did all of the saving. They, we don't do anything to get our salvation. It came as a pure gift of God's holy love and grace. The law of faith puts an end to all of our excuses and reasons for all of our pride in ourselves because we know that nobody obtains salvation by their own righteousness. Righteousness comes by faith alone and not by keeping the law. Everybody is equal before God. Jews who are circumcised and have the law and Gentiles who never knew the law and are uncircumcised, all of us alike need salvation and all of us alike receive it by the same method, faith in Christ. Verse 31 says, Do we overthrow the law by this faith? On the contrary, we uphold the law. How do we do that? It's cool how we do this, right? Do I need to keep the law as a believer in order to go to heaven? In a certain sense, yes. Because I have to be as righteous as God is righteous. But guess what? I don't have to keep the law. You know why? Because I already did. Christ did it on my behalf. I don't have to keep the law because I already did. You know, we can say, when it comes to the law, I did it, nailed it, done. Christ already kept it on my behalf. And so we uphold the righteous standard that God proclaims in the law. But it has already been met on our behalf in Christ. Now, you may have noticed so far, I I don't know if you've noticed or not, but I'm going to point this out. So far in Romans, there are no commands. There are no imperatives in the entire book thus far. We don't get to them yet. And the reason we don't is that Paul is stacking up and building up and explaining all of the marvelous, magnificent things that Christ has done. And he'll continue doing that. In fact, I think the first place you get an imperative is like chapter 6. <laughs> okay. Because he is trying not to, not to tell us what to do yet, but telling us what Christ has already done for us. And so I'm going to do that as well. I'm just going to say, ponder this. Because what Christ has done for us is magnificent. And our only appropriate response is, is not to just go, well, I guess I need to try a lot harder. No. It's to rest in what Christ has done and to worship and glory in Him. Okay? 
Now I'm going to introduce the song we're going to sing here in a second, and then I'm going to pray so they can get ready to do that while I'm praying here. But the song we're about to sing is called Be Thou My Vision. A lot of you are familiar with it. Uh, Its words date back to the 700s A.D. It was originally written in Old Irish. It was a poem uh, originally written in Old Irish, translated into English and versified in the year 1912 by an English woman named Eleanor Hull. And then in 1919, it was set to music to the Irish folk tune Slain and has appeared in hymnals ever since. So for about a hundred years, if you're an English-speaking person, you've been singing this Irish tune of an old Irish monk's poem. Um, so let's all stand and sing here in a second, and, but let's pray right now. God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the marvelous, magnificent, matchless, amazing, wonderful grace of Jesus that reaches to the most defiled. Your grace is so magnificent that no one can go below it, even as your holiness is so high that none of us can stretch to it, and yet you provide Christ, that in your grace we might possess the righteousness of Christ and be declared not just innocent, but righteous in your sight, and therefore able to stand in your presence and to worship you for all eternity. Father, we pray that we might, as we stand and sing, practice for the day when we stand and sing in your presence. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.